Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Flourish FM. In this episode, we were delighted to speak to Gloria Mark, Chancellor's Professor of Informatics at the University of California, Irvine. Gloria received her PhD from Columbia University in Psychology, and she studies the impact of digital media on people's lives. She takes a deep dive in examining multitasking, interruptions, and mood with the use of digital devices. She's published over 200 articles and in 2017 was inducted into the ACM SIGCHI Academy, which recognizes leaders in the field of human-computer interaction. She's presented her work at South by Southwest and the Aspen Ideas Festival, and her research has appeared in media outlets including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, NPR, The Atlantic, the BBC, and many others. Her most recent book on which our conversation this episode focuses is this, Attention Span, A Groundbreaking Way to Restore Balance, Happiness and Productivity. It was published this year. Highly recommend it. It's a fascinating book and makes remarkable contributions to research on attention. Remarkable because, you know, when we describe things like how short our attention span has become in recent decades, which Gloria's research identifies, it is quite shocking. The key themes for discussion in this episode are what attention is, forms it takes, and its role in well-being and human flourishing, how our attention spans have changed and why, and strategies for improving how we manage our attention and focus in today's world. So our key conversation points are Gloria's research and what led her to write this book, which is not only on our attention spans, but connects our attention with happiness and productivity. What attention is, and how Gloria conceptualizes its role in what it means to live a good life. Gloria's view that we should reframe the ultimate goal of technology from productivity to well-being. She writes in her book that rather than using technology to, quote, optimize our time to pack in as much as possible, we should instead think about how we can achieve our utmost well-being, end quote. We discuss this view and what strategies Gloria recommends we take to reframe the way we use technology to primarily support our well-being. We discuss the ways that Gloria's research identifies clear connections between attention and various areas important to human flourishing, such as happiness, productivity, focus, stress reduction, balance, mood, well-being, and flow, the psychological state of optimal performance and experience when we're completely concentrated on a challenging but doable activity. We discussed Gloria's research that shows that certain activities that negatively impact her attention span also negatively impact her well-being. So, for example, multitasking is associated with negative emotions such as stress and anxiety and can lead to burnout. We discussed what Gloria's research has revealed about the shocking ways that our attention span has reduced in recent decades to alarmingly short time periods. To an average, her research has shown, of 47 seconds for office workers when they're using their computers. We discuss these research studies she's conducted, why our attention spans have shortened and how much they've shortened. We discuss types of attention and the most common kind that Gloria argues we utilize in our working lives in today's digital world, which she calls kinetic attention. Quote, a dynamic state of attention characterized by rapid shifts, such as between applications, social media and internet sites, or between the computer and phone. And finally, we discuss Gloria's interesting account of flow, and she emphasizes that it's a creative, optimal state of attention and argues that it has a certain role in our working lives in today's working world. She argues that it's rare in our everyday lives to experience flow, and it shouldn't be the aim for most people in their working lives, such as those who are knowledge workers. 
She describes instead a type of focused, engaged attention that she writes, quote, could be a precondition to flow, end quote. We discuss what this focused, engaged tension is and how exactly it supports flow. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. Her work on attention is extremely important. I hope you love this episode. Enjoy our interview with Gloria Mark. Gloria, welcome. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. So absolutely loved your recently published book, Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. And so excited to dig into the relationship between this today and human flourishing. So first of all, I'd like to say, I mean, your research focuses on how people interact with information technology in everyday lives and how that affects multitasking, attention, mood, and above all, stress. And in Attention Span, you offer a new account of attention. You show how people's attention span is reduced to alarmingly short spans in recent decades. And you interestingly describe how attention is raised to well-being. So could you please tell us about your research and what led you to write this book, a book that's not only on attention spans, but connects attention with happiness and productivity and perhaps also flourishing? Yeah. So I've been researching our interaction with devices for a very long time, well over 20 years. And I've been publishing this in academic presses and journals and conferences. But I realized, you know, in talking with a lot of people that there seemed to be a wider interest in this topic outside of academia. So in writing the book, it gave me a chance to put all of this academic research together and find connections and come up with a bigger story about it. So, you know, I had done separate studies looking at stress and emotions and attention span. And then I realized that these are all linked together and that I could create a pretty comprehensive view about what's happening with our attention in the digital age. Awesome. And your book and your wider research identifies clear connections between attention and many areas that seem important to human flourishing, happiness, productivity, focus, stress reduction, balance, mood, well-being, and flow, the, the psychological state of optimal experience, which we're going to return to later. So what is attention? And how do you think of its role in relation to what it means to live a, a good life, flourishing life, a happy life, and so on? So most people tend to think of attention as residing in a single place in the mind, but it actually works like networks. So just like the financial system, there's no single entity that represents the financial system, but it's also a series of different kinds of networks that work together, like insurance companies, investment firms, banks, and so on. So the first network in attention is called alerting. And that's when we maintain vigilance during a task. Like we're trying to concentrate on doing some important task. We have a deadline. Then there's the orienting network. And that's when we decide what it is we want to focus on. So when we're on our devices, we're sometimes bombarded by a lot of different stimuli. You know, we have notifications, we hear text chimes. And so we have to make decisions as to whether we want to keep focusing on our task at hand or switch our attention. And then last, there's what's called executive control. And that helps us manage interference. So 
because there's all kinds of potential distractions that come into play, try to grab our attention. And executive control tries to filter those out. So all of these networks work in conjunction to help us perform, right? To help us decide what to focus on, to focus and make sure we stay focused. Awesome. Okay. So there's these several different networks involved and there's also different types of attention as well, right? So you speak in your book, for example, of kinetic attention. We're going to dig into that later, but Mm -hmm. what are the different types of attention? How do those relate to those various networks you just described? Right. So we actually, in our research, found four different types of attention. But before I talk about that, let me just talk about two very basic types of attention. And that's controlled attention, controlled processing, where you are intentional in what you're doing. So you're very aware of if you're reading something, writing something, and it involves mental effort, some amount of mental effort. There's also automatic attention. And this is when we respond to stimuli in the environment, and it's just beyond our control. We can't help but respond. So, you know, and this has an evolutionary basis to it, because when people were hunters and gatherers, they had to be on the alert for predators and signals of danger. So they were always scanning the environment. So the irony is that people can walk down the street with a cell phone and not scan the environment when they should and potentially get hit by a bicyclist or run into another pedestrian. So we have controlled and automatic attention. Now, when we work on our devices, both of these types of attention come into play. So if you have a task that needs to be done, you'll exert mental effort to do it. You use controlled processing. Then along comes a notification with blinking lights, or it's got keywords that affect you on some deep emotional level, make you happy or make you fearful, and you just can't help but respond to those. And we encounter these two types of attention and we're switching between them, you know, every time we use our devices. I see. So examples of where we have this automatic attention, but we're engaging our control attention. You give one in the book, for example, of when we're walking down the street, listening to music or working, listening to music, but we're able to do something else completely, perhaps even better in some cases with the music in the background, because it requires none of our controlled attention. It's just purely automatic that it's going on, right? That's right. So people can do two activities at the same time, as long as one of those activities is automatic. So you can drive and talk to a passenger because driving can be automatic. As soon as a car swerves in front of you, your attention is no longer automatic. You're using controlled attention and you stop talking to the person next to you because all of your attentional resources are focused on that person. Now, I want to also mention another really important aspect of attention, and that is we have a limited amount of attentional resources. And throughout the day, there are things we do that can deplete these attentional resources, and there's things we do that can replenish them. So think about it as 
having a tank. I like to use this metaphor of having a tank of resources because then people can visualize, you know, what happens when this tank runs low. When it runs low, they feel exhausted. That's why we feel exhausted. That's why it's hard to focus on anything. When our tank is full, like after a good quality sleep, then, you know, you're starting the day with a full tank. It's easier to concentrate. It's easier to do controlled attention tasks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So that is going to bring on to something I want to ask about soon, which is a point you make about sustained focus itself being a source of stress. So I want to talk about the relation between well-being and attention shortly, but let's keep going down this route of these different types of attention and precisely exactly mm-hmm. what attention is. One thing to say about attention is you, you emphasize the importance of attention being goal-oriented in your book, right? So is this, as it were, like a necessary condition for attention that it has to have goals? Yes, yes. So we direct our attention according to what our goals are. If our goal is to work on a deadline, that's where we pay our attention. If our goal is to do something to relieve boredom, then we might go to social media, right? Or we might read the news. But, you know, our goals can fluctuate throughout the day. And, you know, as soon as you lose touch with the most important goal you have for that day, that's when we fall off track. And, you know, you can think of goals as defense or armor against distractions, because if you're really goal-oriented, then you can have notifications coming onto your screen and you can ignore them because you're you've got these goals in your mind and they're you know ensuring that you're not going to be distracted by something else or you sometimes we even miss hearing a text chime because we're so focused on what we're doing that's because our we have really strong goals that are directing what we're doing hmm okay so we're going to return to flow later but I mean, it's often said that one of the flow triggers, as it's called, you know, a factor that significantly research suggests significantly facilitates flow is having clear goals. And I take it that might be one of the reasons broadening this to attention that if someone has a very clear goal and they're very strongly driven by that goal as well, they're able to resist certain things that might distract them because they're so focused on what they're doing. Is that, that's that's the- right. That's right. Fascinating. Okay, let's return to some of these themes later. Let's continue to dig in on these types of attention. So I want to get on to what you call kinetic attention, which seems to be so important in your book. So you've, you've mentioned there that there's, broadly speaking, these, these two types of attention, controlled attention associated with control processing and automatic attention associated with automatic processing. I take it on the automatic processing, the idea is that it's it's not using any working memory capacity when you're engaged in automatic things that take up automatic. That's, that's right. That's right. Whereas controlled attention. Yeah. So one of the consequences of the digital age is that people shift their attention a lot. And I've been tracking attention spans over the last 20 years, and I've been tracking them empirically, you know, using methods to measure this objectively, not just asking people how long have you paid attention, but actually using measures, you know, we started off using stopwatches. We would follow people around in the workplace and, you know, click on a stopwatch to see how long they were on any screen. And later, computer logging techniques were invented, and these provide unobtrusive ways 
of measuring the length of time that people spend, keep their attention on any screen. So we find that over the last 20 years, with the rise of the digital age, that our attention spans have gotten shorter, way shorter. Back in 2004, you know, after measuring this for about a year and a half, we published a paper showing that people spend about two and a half minutes on any screen before switching. And this astonished us at the time. We thought, wow, this is really short. 2012, we found people's attention spans 75 seconds on average. And then in the last five, six years, we found attention spans to average 47 seconds. And this has been replicated by other people as well. They find 44 seconds on average, 50 seconds on average. 47 seconds seems to be a pretty robust measure. If you look at the median, which is the midpoint of our observations, that's 40 seconds. That means half of all the observations we found were less than 40 seconds. This is what I call kinetic attention because neither controlled nor automatic attention really seemed to describe this phenomenon that we're seeing of people switching their attention so rapidly. And so kinetic comes from the physics term, which means dynamic. And attention is certainly, it's most certainly very dynamic. And people have a hard time just staying put on one particular screen. So that's where the term kinetic attention came about. Right. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. So let's just make sure I've got these stats correct. So 2004 was the first data set you had, right? Two and a half minutes was the average then. And yes. I the, the current data showing the average of 47 seconds was study the data from which would be last year or the year before, 2022. So that was done between the years. It was done by my research team and others as well. And this is the average across those studies, roughly from about 2016 through 2020, I believe. Okay, wow. So a reduction in over 100 seconds, basically, uh, Mm -hmm. in attention spans in under 20 years. Mm -hmm. Well, there's many things I want to ask about here, but how concerned should we be about this in terms of that looks like there's a trajectory here that the next 20 years what is gonna be five seconds and well yeah the thing is we don't know we don't know if people's attention span will continue to get shorter we need to measure that or we don't know if there will be a course correction right that people will realize we need to change um We need collective solutions. Maybe we'll talk about that shortly. So we just don't know what's happening. But the trajectory is certainly (laughs) on the path to attention spans getting shorter. We don't know if they'll plateau. Well, the trajectory would suggest that within the next 10 years or so, there'd be nothing left. It would be (laughs) (laughs) be a split second, basically. Let's go into kinetic attention a little bit more. So I found this is one of the many particularly fascinating parts of your book. So let's just get clear on this. So kinetic attention, you define it as a dynamic state of attention characterized by rapid shifts, such Mm -hmm. as applications, social media and internet sites, or between the computer and phone. And so one thing to particularly note here is that it's associated in our relationship with technology. But is kinetic attention also something we find women not using technology 
you know, moving between conversations very quickly, let's say, or moving between tasks more quickly than usual? How do you then extrapolate this to other areas of life? Yeah. So I'm very data oriented and I haven't seen studies that have looked at offline kinds of behavior. There are some really old studies that have looked at people reading passages from books, but I haven't seen recent studies to see whether this, you know, transfers offline. So I really can't say. What I can say is that this kind of kinetic attention applies not only to our computers, but also to our phones and seems to apply in so many different kinds of applications that people use. In fact, I just had a conversation about how TikTok videos are being speeded up. And as a result, I had a conversation with my students and found that many of them speed up videos when they watch them. They speed up listening to lectures, watching YouTube videos. And I asked them, why? Why do you do that? I think there's several reasons. And one of them is that it's more stimulating. It helps them stay on task and keep attention because they know they have a tendency to switch their attention. Mm. But if it's playing fast, it kind of helps them stay put on that page. So people seem to be self-aware that they're switching a lot. But the other thing that's happening, and it's a much larger cultural phenomenon, is that people feel pressure to have to do more, Mm -hmm. to fit more into their day. Mm -hmm. And if you speed things up, you can pack more things in. And so I think kinetic attention is a result of many, many things these two factors among them. And of course, we, we're sitting in front of the world's largest candy store. And how can we not be tempted to switch and look at something new? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that is going to bring us on to the connection I really want to focus in on soon on the connection between attention and well-being, especially given the theme of this podcast. I should point out that probably many listeners right now might be listening to us on 1.5 or 2 speed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but it's important to clarify, as you as you point out in your book, that kinetic attention is neither good nor bad in itself. You make this point. Because I mentioned a minute ago, you should be concerned about this, and we will come back to that. But you emphasize that it's kind of a type of attention, I take it, that we've developed and cultivated a skill with, without even realizing it, in response to the demands of the modern world, right? Yes, that's right. So, you know, people have to be responsive to the modern world. People who are information workers, whose main job is dealing with digital information, they have to be responsive to emails and Slack messages. And especially if they're collaborating in a team, they have to be responsive to other team members. So we've developed these patterns of behavior to be responsive. And there are so many reinforcing things in our natures that keep this pattern up. For example, we're social beings Mm -hmm. and we want to maintain social capital with our colleagues, with our friends. So we respond to messages. You don't want to let an email message go by, right? There's an expectation that we'll respond fast because we want other people to respond to our messages, right? So, you know, we have to maintain this kind of fairness in social behaviors when we use our online devices. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So this is getting into a kind of a question that I want to ask about why exactly our attention spans have shortened. So your studies have been, as you mentioned, with studies of computer users, I think it partly because you can, not only because you can track that very accurately, but also because predominantly many people in the working world nowadays are primarily, you know, in front of a computer using them. So it's a good way of getting analysis of what people spend most of their time doing. So I just dig in further why you think our attention spans have shortened. Is it because of a mixture of factors such as increasing technological speed, but also you've mentioned this obsession that many of us have with productivity and wanting to fit as much as we possibly can into our waking lives. What's your kind of hypothesis on the reasons why our attention spans have shortened? So there's no single reason. So there's a common narrative that we are distracted because of those notifications. You know, it's the notifications that are doing it to us. Yes, that's one reason, but it's certainly not the only reason, and it's probably not even the main reason. So, you know, let's think about what happened in the last 20 years. So there was the invention of the smartphone in 2007 with the iPhone, Facebook came about in 2003, and then just a host of other kinds of social media came about. So every year, there's been a new source of distraction that has come along. It turns out people are just as likely to distract themselves as to be distracted by something external. So we interrupt ourselves through an urge, a memory, and there's all kinds of psychological processes that go on that leads us to self-distract. For example, if we have an unfinished task, we tend to remember unfinished tasks more than tasks that are finished. And what do our days look like? Our days look like a series of unfinished tasks, Mm -hmm. right? We, We have emails that we realize we need to go back to. We have tasks that we switched away from. This is called the Zygarnik effect. There are individual differences, so there are personality differences. Some people are naturally good at self-regulation. They were born lucky with a trait for self-regulation. Other people were not born so lucky. They have to work a little bit harder to self-regulate. There are technical reasons. So it's not just the fact that there's so much information available for us to look at, but People may not realize it, but the very design of the internet itself inadvertently was designed to distract us. That wasn't the original idea. The original idea was the memics, which came about by Vannevar Bush in 1945. Many listeners probably are familiar with the memics. And it was the idea that information should be associated together. If there was something common among information, It should be linked together. And it mimics the way our memories work, right? We think by associations. And so the design of the internet maps on so well to how our memories work. You go on a website or Wikipedia page, and all of a sudden, so many different associations in your mind are ignited. And then you click on a link and you've got new associations. And before you know it, you're web surfing down the rabbit hole. Let me 
also mention another technical change in our environment. And this is that film and TV shot lights have shortened in duration over the years. They now average four seconds. I don't want to claim causality. I can't say that short film and TV shots cause us to have short attention spans. They could be a reflection on the fact that our attention spans are short and designers and editors, directors might be responding to their own short attention spans when they design these shots. They think this is what people want to see. YouTube, we see jump cuts in YouTube where natural pauses and what's called filler words like ums and ohs are cut out. Why? To pack more content into a shorter amount of time to try to make sure that we keep our attention. Social media constraints the length of content that we can produce and consume, like Twitter. So there's so many different factors that are involved in in keeping our attention short. You know, it's not just causing it, but it's reinforcing us to, to stay, keep our attention pretty concise and kinetic. Yeah, keep it kinetic. Thank you for that rich explanation of the various factors that may be involved here. And yeah, it's, it's fast. The point you made about us remembering unfinished tasks was one of many kind of counterintuitive things that I took from the book. Another being that we also tend to remember tasks that were interrupted when we're doing more than uninterrupted tasks, right? That's the Zygarnik effect. That's the Zygarnik yeah. effect. So it's both. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I see. So but would it be that, because you could obviously be interrupted doing a task, but then finish the task. So is it the case that the Zagayan effect has these two dimensions? It's tasks that you're interrupted doing, you remember more than uninterrupted tasks, but also tasks that you leave unfinished, you remember more than finished tasks. Would it be the case that a task that's both interrupted and unfinished is remembered even better? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I do know that both of those cases exist. And also, I mean, you mentioned self-distraction here, and that was another really fascinating point you made in your book, that you found in your studies quite remarkable how often people self-distracted. For the early stage of your research, there wasn't any clear reason for this. They'd be working on a task and then just check an email. Yes. Even though there was nothing there, just check. (laughs) Yeah, if you could um, talk a bit more about this is internal internal distractions and what your explanation for that might be. Well, it's, you know, people have developed habits of interrupting themselves. And, you know, sometimes they do it because you get rewards, right? And there's something called randomly reinforced behavior, which means that you'll get a reward, maybe not every time you do some behavior, but at random intervals. And checking email is just like that. So every single email that you check, it's not going to bring a reward, but every so often something will, and that's enough to keep us going back. It's like watching TikTok videos. Why do people stay glued to TikTok? It's not that every TikTok video is going to be interesting, but every so often there's one that comes along that's just hilarious. And that's enough to reinforce our behavior to keep us going. And I will mention that randomly reinforced behavior is the hardest to extinguish. 
So if you want to stop that behavior and change it, that is the hardest. If you have a kind of conditioning where every single trial or every other trial is rewarded, that's easier to change. Because when you stop seeing the pattern of rewards, you get it and you figure it out and you stop. When it's randomly reinforced, you have very deep and strong expectations that there's going to be a reward coming. So I'm not going to stop it because it's going to come at some point. Right. So, I mean, this connects with what I take. This is an example of what you call an attention trap. We're going to come on to that. Yes. So it yeah. would be an example of something like the gambler's fallacy where exactly gambler expects there to be a rewarding moment because they've been putting in coins into the slot machine, let's say, for an hour. It's going to come mm-hmm. along in a minute. It's got to come along. But that is that an example of random reward because exactly to prediction of when it's going to happen, right? And that's the hardest kind of reward to break. Hmm. Yeah, that's why you, people stay in front of slot machines because right. they keep thinking it's got to happen. You know, I've been here for an hour and I'm not getting a reward. It's the next one has to work. Wow. Okay. So that's probably hmm, probably postulated as one of the reasons why gambling can be very addictive because it's a, a process of random reward. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Okay. Thank you. Hi friends, Nick here with just a brief interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, they need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure, but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co-founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti-Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well-being and anti-fragility. The ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division One programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com. Right, let's now dig into the connection, or more into the connection between attention and well-being, connecting it up with the, you know, the theme of this podcast, Flourishing. So I was quite taken early in your book, you write that we should reframe the ultimate goal of technology from productivity to well-being rather than using technology right to optimize our time to pack in as much as possible we should instead think about how we can achieve our utmost well-being yeah so can you please describe what led you to this view and how you think we could reframe the way we see and use technology to primarily support well-being rather than productivity yeah so it goes back to the idea that we have this limited tank of attentional resources And I came to understand this reframing just from talking to so many people over the years and people 
describing to me that they felt exhausted. You know, they were on their devices, they were switching their attention, and they were getting stressed. We found measurably the faster people switch their attention, in other words, the more kinetic it is, the higher is their stress. We measured that through heart rate monitors. So the way to achieve well-being is to not let your attentional resources get drained. And, you know, we live in a culture where we're just being pushed to produce as much as possible, right? It's We've gotten ourselves to this place where we, if you're not producing as much as you can, technology has extended our capabilities. So in theory, we should be able to produce a lot more. But in doing so, we have to remember that the human mind is still a bottleneck. We can produce information, but we can't always process all the things that we're trying to produce or even all the information we're trying to consume. Now, there's a psychological theory that I'm very taken by. It's called the broaden and built theory. And it shows, you know, the research shows that when people feel positive, they can do more. So, and these are studies where they evoke positive emotions in people. And when you feel positive, you have a greater repertoire of actions that you can take. So people can be more creative when they feel positive. You have more energy, you have more motivation. And so let's not put the cart before the horse. Let's think about how we can cultivate, you know, this kind of well-being, how we can enable people to optimize their attentional resources and not get exhausted, not get drained. And they'll be productive along the way. I see. And what role then does balance play in this? Because the subtitle of your book is a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. And you, you write in your book that you're trying to promote a process of feeling balance in our relationship with technology. So yeah, what, what exactly do you mean by balance here? Yeah. So there's actually a physiological basis to what I mean when I talk about psychological balance. So the autonomic nervous system has two different parts. There's the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. And the parasympathetic system is what people generally think of as rest and digest functions. That's when the body is relaxed. The sympathetic system is the fight or flight reaction, which people, you know, think about, you know, the image from an evolutionary perspective is that, do you confront the bear that you've, you know, that you come across, or do you run away? So heart rate increases, and basically, people are stressed. Now, what happens, unfortunately, to a lot of us in the digital world is that there's an imbalance that there is a dominance of the sympathetic system. And that's why people feel so stressed throughout the day. And so what we need to think about is called psychological homeostasis or balance. So we can allow the parasympathetic system, the one that relaxes us to be able to take over. Mm -hmm. I see. So engaging in a process 
we might say, oscillating between engaging the sympathetic nervous system and engaging also the parasympathetic nervous system rather than being so much engaged with the sympathetic nervous system throughout so much of the day because that, that can lead to chronic stress, I take it, over time. Yeah, so if you experience enough acute stress episodes, yes, it can lead to chronic stress and chronic stress has all kinds of negative outcomes like high blood pressure or you know even heart disease as a result. So it's really important to be aware of that. I see. Okay, so I then want to kind of tease out how this balance might work in practice with the kinds of types of attention you talk about and types of focus to talk about because as I mentioned earlier, you interestingly show that certain activities that negatively impact our attention also negatively impact our well-being. So multitasking, you write, is associated with negative emotions such as stress and anxiety and can lead to burnout for the reasons you just said. But you also conversely point out that sustained focus is associated with stress. And I take it one of the aims of the book is to show us how we can sustain focus in a world where our attention is you know, at such a premium. So is the balance also about striking the right balance between you know, utilizing our skills in getting into engaged attention and focusing our attention, but also making sure that we don't kind of strain that too much and, as it were, noticing when we ought to remove our attention from such highly engaged states and take a step back. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, we have this common narrative in our culture. Let's focus as long as we can. Nonstop focus, 10 hours of focus. Here's how you can focus for extended periods. You know, we came to this place because technology has, again, it's given us the capabilities to do more. So we think we should be using it. But we can't have extended periods of focus any more than we can lift weights nonstop for Mm -hmm. long periods without Mm -hmm. getting exhausted. There's a neuroscience basis for when we experience cognitive fatigue. So when you have periods of extended focus, there's a neurotransmitter that actually builds up in our brains, glutamate, and it sends us a signal that, hey, you're fatigued, it's time to back off. The problem is we don't always listen to those signals because we are so determined to try to keep ourselves focused and produce more. But we get exhausted, it impacts our well-being, and it becomes hard to perform. So what we need to do instead is to listen to these signals and to realize that our focused attention actually works in rhythms. And, you know, if you want, I can talk a little bit I more think, about I think that. That would be great. I think we can please do. Yeah. Okay. So... You know, when I started studying attention, I realized that people can be engaged in something, but sometimes we exert a lot of mental effort, like with controlled processing that I talked about earlier, but sometimes we can be really engaged in something and it's easy. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of effort at all playing a mindless game, watching a YouTube video. There are so many examples of that. And so... What we did was we probed people throughout the day and we asked them two simple questions. How engaged are you in the thing you were just doing and how challenged are you in the thing you were just doing? In other words, how much mental effort 
are you expending? We had timestamps on the probes, and we gave them a lot of probes throughout the day. So we could see exactly, you know, how they were paying attention or not. So I define being engaged and exerting effort as being focused, right? You need to have some kind of effort to be focused, to comprehend what it is you're doing. But if you're engaged and not at all challenged, I call that rote attention. If you're not challenged and not engaged, that's boredom. And if you're challenged and not at all engaged, I call that a state of frustration. And, you know, like if I have a tech problem, that's I'm not engaged in trying to figure it out, but I've got to do it. So we find that focused attention occurs in rhythms throughout the day. So people in our studies show two peaks. So there's one around mid to late morning, and then a second one mid to late afternoon. People can't, they don't come to work ramped up and ready to go. What they naturally do is they naturally do simple things, more like road activities, kind of to get themselves maybe in the mood. They also do things to get work out of the way, like email, so that they can finish tasks. Hopefully, they won't be affected by the Zygarnik effect. It clears the plate, and then they can really do deep focus. And they do it, they have a period of time in the morning, then a period of time in the afternoon. And and that corresponds with the ebb and flow of our attentional resources, right? And if you take substantial breaks, it gives you a chance to replenish your resources and you can build them back up again. So it's good to be able to switch among these different attentional types. So you spend some time being focused and then you can pull back and you can do some kind of rote activity. We actually find people are happiest when they do rote activity. It has a calming effect. And there are so many examples of great scientists and writers that have had their particular road activities that they did that helped calm them. And it can let ideas incubate. And sometimes you can come up with new ideas just by pulling back and doing something simple where your mind is engaged, but you're not using a lot of cognitive resources. And instead, those resources might be churning around and helping you think of ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. So I found some of the examples you gave in the book fascinating. I think you gave the example of Maya Angelou. Was it crosswords that she would do as a, as a way yeah. of rote activity? Would you just find that as a rote activity? So that's very challenging, but can be very challenging. It depends. So Maya Angelou talked about her big mind and her little mind, and she used her big mind for her writing process, like when she really had to do use deep thought. And she would pull back and take breaks and use her little mind. And her little mind was what she used for crossword puzzles. Now, depends on if the crossword puzzle is easy or hard, you know, depends on a person's preference. But it was interesting that Angelo made this distinction between these two different kinds of thinking processes that she had. And, you know, other artists and scientists, 
Einstein played the violin and claimed that by playing the violin, he was able to come up with some great ideas. He was actually a very accomplished violinist. And the writer Gene Stafford does gardening and so many examples of simple activities that people can do to replenish. Yeah, I love that with Einstein, that his rote activity is what many people describe as the hardest of all musical instruments to play. Um. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, he was very good at it. And actually, maybe one of my favorite examples is the philosopher of Wittgenstein, who peeled potatoes and Hmm. said that he got his greatest ideas from peeling potatoes. Now, you have to be somewhat engaged in peeling potatoes, right? So you're engaged, but, you know, he was able to use his mental resources to think of ideas. And sometimes it's good for mind wandering. Yeah. Yeah. He used to love reading crime novels while going to the cinema. Um, Many evenings, he would spend many evenings in the cinema sat right at the front so the, the screen would take his entire field of vision. <laughs> uh, watching West, I think Westerns were his favourite genre and, and to, you know, completely consume his attention and get things away. I'm glad you brought up, I wrote my PhD on Wittgenstein. I'm glad you... Uh, oh, wonderful. Away. Yeah, thank you. So, road activities, what about something like scrolling social media? So, something you powerfully argue for in your book is that road activities, as you've just described then, can play a really important role in our lives, a really positive role in our lives. But what about something like scrolling social media? Is presumably that is a rote activity. It is. Is there a, a place for that in the day that can actually enhance productivity and well-being or not? So we have to be very careful with social media because it's so easy to fall into an attention trap. And I describe in the book about the attention trap associated with social media. We're social creatures, we're curious. And, you know, so we keep scrolling. So you have to be very strategic. What I really like to do and what I recommend with social media is that instead of mindless scrolling, think about an individual who you want to connect with and be more intentional in using social media. Social media is actually a great way to connect with people. It's a lot easier to connect over social media than picking up a phone, right? Or meeting someone in person, even though that's the gold standard of how we should be interacting. But use social media to your advantage as a way to connect with an individual. We can't possibly keep up with thousands of connections that we have on social media. And sometimes it can be meaningless and that shouldn't happen. So let's think about how we can use it more purposefully. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So I now want to move the conversation on to flow. Flow, which you talk about in length at length in your book and, and easy to see why, since it's kind of often defined as the the highest state of attention. So you put an interesting account of flow, emphasize that it's creative optimal state of attention and an interesting argument about its role in the working lives of most of us. You argue that it's rare in our everyday lives and shouldn't be the aim for most people in their working lives, such as those who are in that broad category of knowledge workers, perhaps because of the role that kinetic attention is now playing there. So could you please explain how you define flow and how you think we should see the role it can play in the working lives of most people today? Yeah. So flow comes from the psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who 
discovered that when people experience this optimal state of attention, they're extremely creative, they're deeply immersed in what they're doing, and time doesn't seem to matter. So I studied art. Uh, that was my first degree. I was an artist. And in doing art, I would get into flow regularly. I could expect, you know, every time I would be painting that I could get into flow. And sometimes I would be painting and before I knew it, it would be in the middle of the night. And I just, where did all these hours go? I couldn't figure it out. So now I'm in a science field and I have to use more of an analytical mindset. So I read articles, I analyze data, I design research studies, and that's not necessarily conducive to flow. Sometimes I experience flow if I'm, say, in a brainstorming activity with other people. But I've talked to so many information workers, and the nature of the work that they do is not necessarily conducive to flow. Now, that's not a bad thing. And I want to emphasize this is this can actually be a great thing because people can do work that's fulfilling, that's rewarding, that's deeply satisfying without having to go into flow. Now, if a person who gets into flow and in knowledge work, people who do complex coding report that they can get into flow. I talked about doing group brainstorming. You know, some people talk about it as group flow. So these kinds of things can happen. But rather than push ourselves and expect that we should get into flow, and if we can't, there's something wrong with us, let's instead think about how we can leverage the natural rhythms of attention we have so that we can actually do the most when our attentional resources are at their peak, how we could really utilize them efficiently. Now, you know, if someone is lucky enough to be able to do creative work in their job, then yeah, it's great. I, I imagine they might be able to get into flow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you do also describe a type of focused, engaged attention. And you're right, that could be a precondition to flow. And I take it this is something you think that can be much more common in today's world for knowledge workers, even in the rapidly increasing world of technology we're in. Could you please describe this type of attention, how it supports? Yeah. So when I talked about these, these two dimensions of being engaged and challenged and how we measured people's responses over the day. When people are engaged and challenged, I call that a state of focus, right? So you need some amount of effort in what you're paying attention to. But you have to be in that state for some amount of time before you can get into flow, right? Now, I can't tell you how long that state will be. And a lot of it just depends on the task. Mm -hmm. When I did art, Sometimes I would get into flow quite quickly, but it took me, you know, I couldn't do it immediately. I'd have to be kind of, I'd ease into the work that I was doing and get myself sort of wrap my head around it. And then once I started working, I could get into flow. Now, you know, watching a Netflix film is not flow. 
playing a mindless game is not flow. Some people think that it is. You know, you can watch a movie and be really engaged and absorbed in it, but that's not flow. No, flow is just the right combination of being challenged and using your skill. And if something is too challenging, then it's too hard and people won't get into flow. Something is not challenging enough, it's too easy. People won't get into flow. So there's this sweet spot that we have to hit. Yeah, what what Shikhsenmihai called the flow channel. Mm-hmm. And the, you're, you're doing a challenging but doable activity and your skills yes. to their limits, you can just about do the challenging task. Yes. Um, okay. And and you also, you write that rhythm is the new flow. And I take it this is bringing us back to what you say about balance in the sense of being mastering how we switch our attentional states. So just yes. it's up with this type of engaged attention. I take it then your argument is that in the world in which we now live, where our attention spans have decreased, where kinetic attention is the type of attention we, we tend to use most of the time, flow is in many professions and for many types of work, much more rare than for, say, people who are working in creative industries in particular, or perhaps working in sports, things that deeply embody someone. Because that's Yeah, sports is a great example. Rhythm is the new flower. Have I understood that's what you mean by that? Can you explain what you mean by moving? Yeah, so I, I think that if you can get in touch with the rhythm of your attentional resources, knowing when you're at your peak, when you should be doing your hardest and most creative work, and knowing when to pull back, when listen to your mind signals that are telling you you're starting to experience cognitive fatigue, and then it's time to pull back and do something to replenish, take a substantial break, right? Rebuild your resources so that you can go back and perform again. So, and that's counter to this narrative of doing nonstop focus. So that's what I mean that rhythm is the new flow is understanding, you know, what your peaks and valleys are. Some people are are quite good at it. Some people are less good, but I think it's an important goal that we should have because then we can end our day with better well-being, feeling more positive. That's the goal. Because when you end your day with stress, there are carryover effects. Mm-hmm. We bring stress home with us, and that's when acute stress turns chronic. Yeah, yeah. I take it that would be likely to impact the qualities of sleep, for example, when they absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's a cyclical relationship. When you're stressed, you don't sleep well. When you don't sleep well, you start your day without a full tank, and then it's harder to do work. Yeah. The concept, the relation that you talk about in your book, emotional residue, where we carry over the emotions from some experience and bring that to something else we're doing, right? If we're experiencing stress and then we try and do something that's pleasant and non-stressful, like going to bed at night, we're going to bring that stress back with us. I take it. That's that's right. And even when we experience kinetic attention, where we're switching our attention between different websites, different devices, between email, et cetera. Sometimes you'll encounter something that really has an impact on you emotionally. Like you read the news about some horrific accident, and then you try to go back to work. Mm-hmm. And there's that residue that stays with you. It's like every time we switch tasks, 
It's like we have a whiteboard inside of our mind and we need a mental model of the task we're working on. And so you have that mental model on this internal whiteboard of your mind. You suddenly switch to check email. You're erasing that whiteboard and you're putting up this new mental model of email on the whiteboard. Then you switch again, erasing, rewriting. Just like a regular whiteboard leaves residue, sometimes we can't erase it fully. Same thing happens in our mind. And this, of course, affects our performance. Awesome. That's an excellent analogy describing that. Thank you. So we have our uh, kind of a signature question. We ask all of our guests to finish, uh, to conclude our interview today. We call it originally the flourishing question. (laughs) What is the one lesson on flourishing you want our listeners to walk away with? And what might be a practical step for putting that lesson into action? Mm. So my answer comes from my own experience, having started out as an artist. And I learned, I would say, creativity. And, you know, one might think, well, this doesn't really apply to any other field. And I would argue that it has really served me well in science. Art teaches you lateral thinking to connect two different ideas that are seemingly very disparate. And you can find some connection, put them together, and then come up with something new. And for me, that's what makes me flourish is when I'm creative. And I try to create the conditions to be creative. And, you know, sometimes I have to put some effort into doing that, like if I'm coming, trying to come up with a new research idea, I try to push myself to really think out of the box. And it goes back to my art training. I draw on my art training, and it really helps me think of something really different. And then sometimes I have to work to make a connection between some crazy different idea and you know, eventually where I want to get to. But the process of being creative is really what makes me flourish. And I think anyone can use this kind of creative process in what they do, no matter what their job is. You know, even if people think, oh, I have a mundane job, I can't be creative. I disagree. I think there are ways to be creative. You have to look for them, but you can find it. Love that. And that connects with so many themes in this episode. It's a wonderful way to conclude things. Perhaps that's, for example, a way that some people might be able to find more flow in their work through looking for those creative outputs. But as you point out, they shouldn't be disheartened if they can't, because there is a another type of attention we can aspire for, this engaged attention you describe in your Yeah, book. that's very fulfilling too. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Gloria. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've learned a great deal and I've absolutely loved reading your book. I I can't recommend it enough to our listeners and and viewers here. Attention span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. Gloria, where can people learn more about your work? Yeah. So you can go to my website, www.gloriamark.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter, Gloria Mark, bottom score, PhD. So yeah, would love to hear about people's experiences. I'm very curious and would like to hear what people say about their attentional experiences. 
Awesome. Thank you. We will share links to your website, your website at the University of California, Irvine, LinkedIn, Twitter, and your book in our show notes. Thank you very much for all of you listening today. Hope you've loved this episode and look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.